Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. At one time, midwives were part of pregnancy and birth in America until there was a shift to professionalized medicine when doctors took the lead in obstetric care. Midwifery or midwifery is slowly being embraced again, and a new report in PLOS One, a peer-reviewed scientific journal, finds the U.S. states that give midwives a bigger role in patient care see better health outcomes for mothers and babies. Coming up, we'll talk with ProPublica reporter Nina Martin, who reported on this story, and we'll hear from an obstetrician at the med- who is a medical director of obstetrics at the Vadone Birth Center at Yale New Haven Hospital, St. Raphael. First, eastern Connecticut makes up a region of 42 towns. A new report looks at the outcomes for 224,000 women and girls who live in this part of the, of the state. And you can join the conversation, too, 860-275-7266. You can email Where We Live at WMPR.org. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. I want to welcome into the studio Maryam Malahi, president and CEO of the Community Foundation of Eastern Connecticut. Um, they're the ones that worked on this report, also a member of the Board of Connecticut public. Marian, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Good to be here. Also in studio with us is a trustee of the Community Foundation of Eastern Connecticut, Chief Lynn Malerba of the Mohegan Tribe. She also has a doctorate in nursing. Welcome to the show, Chief Malerba. Thank you so much. Thank you for having us this morning. And very in-depth report, Miriam. Uh, let's start with why uh, your organization commissioned this report and what did you look at specifically? Thank you. Well, for years uh, we've been uh, gathering data and learning through anecdotal stories from so many of our grantees about how women and girls prosper in our region, what the needs are, what the challenges are, and how we can do better. And we felt that it was really important to dig deeper. There hadn't really been a report done in uh, our region, the eastern third of Connecticut, that looked at you know where we are, where women and girls are in terms of education, economic security, health, welfare, secure, safety, personal safety. And we thought that it would um, inform our uh, grant making to be much more strategic. It would help uh, philanthropists in the region, policymakers, and uh, nonprofit leaders get a better sense of what works, what the challenges are, and where we can come together to bring about change for the better. Tell us about the women and girls who live in eastern Connecticut. I mentioned at the top of the show this is a part of the state that doesn't get a lot of attention. Thank you for asking. So we learned a lot uh, through this report. For example, we learned that we have, and and it's not strange and it's not just unique to this region, but we have uh, an, an aging population of 65 and over of women and that elder care is an issue and it's not being addressed uh, as vociferously as it should be. Education is is always something that provides a leg up, as we know, in our communities. And we learned that uh, one in five uh, women in Willimantic and New London don't have a high school diploma. And we know how that skews opportunities for the future. Of course, when you dig deeper into women of color, this is this becomes even uh, a deeper concern. The opioid crisis is one of our concerns across 
uh, Connecticut and in eastern Connecticut, it's clearly an issue of, of great concern. Ma- mental health is an area that we're uh, recommending greater focus. We learned that four, that uh, women, younger women, millennials, have four times more chances of uh, being depressed than men of the same age. Violence against women is a major public health issue, and we have terrific uh, women's shelters and prevention nonprofits working in the region, but they're still not reaching out as as uh, effectively as they would if they had more capacity and funding. So as we uh, gathered the data and the findings, what we're trying to do is to build communities, to have conversations and build a momentum, talk with policymakers, and really have conversations around how we go about changing social norms, how we go about changing policies, so that instead of changing one life at a time, we can change uh, the situation for larger communities at a time. We hear so often, uh, Miriam, that resources are stretched in Connecticut. And the challenges um, and that you have mentioned um, in eastern Connecticut can also be found in other parts of the state. So what are the best ways to get a further reach in that particular 42-town region of eastern sure. Connecticut? Um, what are some, I know you have this report and you've talked about it with uh, your stakeholders, but what are the next steps? So how do you, I guess, I guess again, expand that reach uh, so uh, these different issues that can be addressed in a, uh, in a sufficient way? First of all, I think we all need to come to the table and agree that investing in our women and children is investing in our future. So once we we have that agreement, then it makes it much easier to discuss which kind of policies we should be investing in because we're looking forward and ensuring that in 10, 20 years, we will uh, benefit from this investment today. Second, we are working together collaboratively with other community foundations, other funders, and women's groups to address our policymakers at the Capitol so that this is not intended to be one region over another. It's intended to be all of us do better when our women and girls get the kind of attention that they need. This is where we live. You're listening to Miriam Malahi, president and CEO of the Community Foundation of Eastern Connecticut. Uh, the organization uh, just uh, released a report on the status of women and girls in Eastern Connecticut. And also in studio with me is Chief Lynn Malerba of the Mohegan Tribe. She's a trustee of the Community Fonda- Foundation of Eastern Connecticut, has a, a doctorate in nursing. Uh, we heard Miriam mention a, a couple of issues related to health care. From your background uh, in the health field, what stands out to you? What stands out to me especially is the fact that we need to think about health in a very holistic way. And you can imagine I would say that coming from a Native tribe. The other thing that I think is so important is the fact that health is political. And one of the quotes that I love is, the primary determinants of disease are mainly economic and social, and therefore its remedies must also be economic and social. Medicine and politics cannot and should not be kept apart. So if we think about how we're going to improve the health uh, status of women and girls, we have to think about how we have a cohesive health care policy. It makes no sense that it, depending on where you live, depends on what your health status is, and also whether or not you're employed uh, makes a difference about what your personal health status is. And my attitude is that health care is a right. It's a human right. 
And we need to think about how we take care of all of our people in a way that is nurturing, it's cohesive, and it makes sense in terms of policy. So when I think about um, the Community Foundation, I think what they talk about is the fact that, you know, we need to promote individual health. And, and we need to promote individual economic security. We know that you're, if you have poor health, it's a barrier to your employment, and so that affects your economic security. We need to increase food security. We need to think about how we access healthcare and human services. We need to think about the things that are barriers for people. What about transportation? Transportation is a huge barrier to healthcare. If you don't have transportation, or if you're working um, and you're unable to access healthcare because of the timing of your scheduled shift, uh, that's a problem. We also need to think about how our relationship to the environment and perhaps our healthy environment you know, protects our health or harms our health. As I've worked throughout Indian country, even though Indian lands are about 4% of the United States, 24% of all the Superfund sites are on Indian lands. How do those toxins affect the next generations in terms of epigenetics? We need to really think about how our policy affects the health of women and girls in our United States, but in particularly in southeastern Connecticut, because that's where I live. That's where our tribe has always been. And we, you know, help to contribute to some of the uh, the uh, various uh, not-for-profits because we believe that it's our job and our duty to help everyone achieve a better lifestyle and quality of life. This report looks again at the status of women and girls, uh, something in the report that is surprising. We've heard that birth rates uh, among teenagers has gone down, but in some eastern Connecticut cities, the birth rate is higher than other parts of the state, Mary? Yeah, I mean, it all goes back to access to uh, education and engaging with our younger girls through various programs that we actually have funded to make sure that they are they are taking care of themselves and that they have opportunities for better health uh, options and healthier options. Uh, so that's something that we're very engaged in, and it's obviously something that we're concerned about. You mentioned earlier also um, among mental health issues, significantly higher rates of depression among women students uh, than uh, male students. Mental health, that's something that is being talked about nationwide in the last uh, few weeks. Uh, what is working in terms of what you're seeing? Because again, Eastern Connecticut is a large region. What's working and how can that be replicated in other parts of, of that region? Uh, Chief Malerba. I think one of the most important things is to really have a conversation with our communities because the the uh, solutions to mental health and the solutions to depression and any of the challenges that we're facing are going to come from our community. So we need to understand our community. And I think that that's why this study is so important, because it gives us a baseline to work from. And it, it helps us understand where we're at today, because you can't articulate where you want to end up unless you understand what your baseline is. And once we have those conversations and we really understand what our children and our women are facing in our community, then I think we can develop we can develop those solutions in conjunction and in collaboration with the people who are most affected because we can't it's not a top down approach. It's got to be a bottom up approach. 
so I think that those conversations are going to be very helpful in helping us strategize and also gather the information that we need to then collaborate with the other agencies throughout southeastern Connecticut so that we have a cohesive approach to how we're going to really realize some gains here. I want to go back to Miriam Malahi, President and CEO of the Community Foundation of Eastern Connecticut. Let's talk about the poverty uh, in that region, one in 10 households under the poverty line, also many women, families living in this condition called ALICE. Can you tell us what ALICE stands for uh, and a little bit further on the challenges for women and families? Yes. uh, ALICE is is, uh, actually, it's an acronym that uh, the United Way put together some years ago that is based on the report that they did. It's, it's about asset-limited income families and women uh, in particular in that part of our region. And it looked at families where they, they are basically what we refer to as the working poor. People have jobs that allow them to basically just survive on the brink. So a lost paycheck, uh, a health emergency, Uh, and need for a child at school, um, transportation costs, uh, breakdown in the car, whatever uh, along these lines could happen, the family would go into debt. And this is of great concern because they are just surviving on the brink. So when we talk, all of these issues are connected. When we talk about the importance of access to education for everyone and the importance of getting a high school diploma, it is because there's evidence that once uh, young people have access to a college diploma, they can, to a high school diploma, they can then get better jobs and have access to employment and rise. Uh, When we look at the data, the differential between girls and boys, women and men, uh, having access to STEM jobs, for example, it is all connected to the fact that their educational opportunities were skewed in different ways. And from early on, whatever job you have at the early part of your career, as we know, it impacts your move up in the career line and therefore uh, it impacts the family income. So at the end of the day, what we come away with is the conclusion that when women and girls do better, the families do better and the community does better. And part of our commitment to convey to policymakers is that when we invest in opportunities for women and girls, we make sure that the communities in our state do better. You know, it's interesting when we're talking about working families and how sometimes they're just one paycheck away from reaching a crisis point. Uh, working families who need child care, and we know child care costs are exorbitant in the state. Your report finds $15,000 a year. At the same time, the state is cutting back on the subsidies to help some of these families with child care. Uh, Chief Malerba, I mean, how do we get past that, helping people even get to their job because they need to find a place for their child to be during the day? And that is really a challenge for us. We are very fortunate at Mohegan because we do operate a child care center and we subsidize that center. So I think employers need to be part of the solution to that problem. And it's not just good child care. It's, it's, it's access to good child care. But what if your child is sick and you have to take a day off from work or there is a, te- a snow day or a teacher development day? All of those things factor into your employment. And I think we need to make sure that our employment policies and our employer policies support families for doing that and that there's more flexibility in their scheduling and their time. 
at work so that they're able to fulfill their commitment to their employer, but also not be so stressed out about how their child is going to be cared for on those days that they put their, uh, their employment in jeopardy for that reason. We were talking about uh, the workforce and employers. I'm curious about what the pay gap looks like, uh, Miriam, for women in this part of the region. Yes, what we found is uh, it's actually not dissimilar to other parts of the region. It's women get paid about 70 cents to a dollar than men do. And when you dig deeper, when you talk about women of color, it's even the disparities are even deeper. And then again, it goes back to the conversation we had on education. Education, uh, the disparities among uh, the number of of women who end up with advanced degrees or that are even involved in the STEM fields. Can we talk a little bit more about what your data found? Yes. um, We find that uh, actually there's... um, there is more uh, opportunities for girls to to move in the area of STEM, and that's very hopeful. We've been in uh, some of the organizations that we support are encouraging girls to to uh, move into STEM. Uh, and the reason for again the the conversation about having a background in science and technology is that we find these are better paying jobs and they're better paying jobs that where there are opportunities in eastern connecticut so there is uh so there is a shift in trying to encourage uh young women to move in this direction and it is working it's not it hasn't been moving as fast as we would like to see it and therefore the current disparities that exist you mentioned um, that part of the, the state. We know that Electric Boat, um, yes. other manufacturers that are, are pairing up with the community colleges to get uh, people with the right skills so that they can move into these jobs. I think it's 13,000 new manufacturing jobs in the next decade. Uh, can you talk a little further, uh, Chief Malerba, on uh, what you guys are seeing on the ground to help connect women and girls to these professions? Uh, yes. And actually, I think that there is a lot of activity in southeastern Connecticut. And when we think about Three Rivers Community College, they are working very closely with employers to determine what skill sets people are going to need and then looking at their curriculum to decide how best to meet that need. And I think that's really important because when we think about people who perhaps can't take a traditional route um, towards their education, starting at a, at a community college is really an excellent, excellent opportunity. And when we think about Dominion Nuclear Power Plant, they're reaching out to young students in high school, in particular at the tech schools, to encourage them to then study nuclear engineering, promising them a position once they're finished. And I have two great nieces that participated in that program and have been very gainfully employed by um, that industry. So it is a coalition that we need to create between the employers, the educational institutions, and trying to be creative in supporting even part-time education because we don't want um, that to be a barrier. And we know that people have multiple priorities and multiple commitments. So we need to make sure that we're supporting education in a myriad way. One of the report recommendations is developing women leaders, uh, both Miriam and uh, Chief Malerba, both women leaders in your careers. Uh, Chief Malerba, what are some of your thoughts on how to encourage um, uh, more young women into these leadership positions as someone who has had quite a career? (laughs) Well, it's funny, and I always tell our young tribal children, you don't understand how shy I was growing up (laughs) and that I really was very quiet. No one would have ever even known I was in the room. So what I encourage our young girls to do is to find their voice and to know that nothing 
can stand in their way if they just find some confidence. And I think success begets success. And I am a student who benefited from scholarship programs. I'm one of seven children. My parents were very loving. I had lots of support, but I knew that there wouldn't be financial support for my education. And so I took a very long, circuitous route and finally got my doctoral degree when I was 61. Um, and always worked and went to school part-time. So my poor husband, long-suffering husband. (laughs) Well, this has been an interesting conversation. And before we go, I wanted to find out next steps from Mary Malahi, again, president and CEO of the Community Foundation of Eastern Connecticut. I understand there's a panel discussion coming up. Yes, there is. I should mention that we have four women and girls funds, and we have invested over 1.7 million over the last 20 years or so on various initiatives that advance women and girls in our region. So part of our our, uh, intent as we bring together policymakers, philanthropists, activists in the community is really to focus in on moving forward. So on March 8th, which is International Women's Day, we will have a gathering and your guests uh, uh, on the air are, are all welcome to join us at the Norwich Inn from three to five to really dig deeper on how we can go about identifying solutions to some of the issues that we've found and raised and how we can move together collaboratively to bring about change in our communities. And we're going to link to that report again that we've been talking about, the status of women and girls in Eastern Connecticut, on our website, wmpr.org slash where we live. We'll also tweet out a link. Thanks so much to Maria Malahi, President and CEO of the Community Foundation of Eastern Connecticut, also a member of the Board of Connecticut Public, and Chief Lynn Malerba of the Mohegan Tribe. She has a doctorate in nursing, also a trustee of the Community Foundation of Eastern Connecticut. Thank you both for coming in. We appreciate it. Thank you for inviting us. Thank you. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up, an update from a series ProPublica has been working on looking at maternal health and death in the U.S. ProPublica reporter reporter Nina Martin is back to talk about her latest story on the role of midwives and what impact they have on the outcomes of mothers and their newborns. Did you have a midwife during your pregnancy? You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. In August, we talked to ProPublica about a startling statistic. The U.S. has the highest rate of maternal deaths in the developed world due to pregnancy-related complications. ProPublica's six-month investigation with NPR found that every day in America, on average, two or three women die from pregnancy-related causes, complications like preeclampsia, hemorrhage, and cardiac issues. And 60% of these deaths could have been prevented. ProPublica reporter Nina Martin is back with us today to talk about her latest reporting in the Lost Mothers series. Her story focuses on the role of midwives and the results seen from Europe to the U.S. when midwives have a bigger role in a woman's pregnancy care. Now, did you have a midwife during your pregnancy? How did that care continue after you had your baby. Join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. I want to welcome Nina Martin back to the show. Again, she covers gender and sexuality for for ProPublica. Nina, welcome back. Thank you so much for having me. Let's talk about this new study that looked at the rules surrounding uh, midwifery uh, published in this peer-reviewed scientific journal, PLOS. Um, I understand in a conversation with our producer, you described the study as groundbreaking. Why is that? 
Well, this is the first time that um, uh, researchers in the U.S. have been able to take um, a systematic look at uh, what midwives can do, um, are allowed to do, and are not allowed to do um, in the states where they practice. And then um, overlay that with data from the CDC and from other federal agencies looking at um, uh, a range of neonatal and um, mater- indicators of neonatal and maternal health. So things like um, C-sections, infant mortality rate, um, the rates of breastfeeding, the rates of prematurity. Um, so this is, it's the first time that researchers have been able to do this. And what they have found is, um, uh, on some level, not very surprising if you happen to be a longtime um, advocate of midwives or if you kind of understand the potential of what midwives can do in this country and what they do do in, abroad. And it basically found that um, in states that have the highest integration of midwives into their healthcare systems, um, they tend to do significantly better for um, on these indi- measures of maternal and, fetal and infant health. And states that have uh, some of the most restrictive policies and laws towards midwives uh, tend to do um, significantly worse on key indicators. It's important to note before we go much further that the mid- that the study is not saying that um, these in these the ways that states do on um, these rankings um, of infant and maternal um, uh, health is directly related to midwives. Uh, they're saying that um, something that uh, is it, it, they're basically saying that uh, that sta- that midwives. Uh, that that they don't do that they don't do worse, and there are lots of other reasons that women, that midwives you know that that for um, that infant and, and maternal health um, uh, may or may not be doing well in a in an individual state, but midwives um, are potentially uh, in states that don't have them a really important resource that we should be tapping. Uh, when you're talking about other uh, factors that can impact uh, maternal uh, health as well as the uh, health of a baby, so chronic conditions, access to certain insurance or, or Medicaid in a particular state, um, these are some our access to preventative medicine, all the things that can factor into the, the, the outcome of a, of, a, of a woman and her baby? Exactly. And one of the things that um, uh, may uh, that seems to be true is that states that have done um, the best um, toward integrating midwives um, uh, have um, often have uh, have just overall have done maybe have a better um, uh, Relationships and sort of you know between in the within the medical system the overall medical system may be better integrated than states that have been the most restrictive towards midwives. So the states that have been the best of uh, the the the, um, the most welcoming toward midwives include states like Washington, Oregon, and New Mexico. States that have done uh, have been the most hostile to midwives are um, many of them are in the South, um, uh, North Carolina. Um, Alabama, Mississippi, um, and then a couple of, uh, and then some in the Midwest, um, Ohio comes to mind.
We should back up a little and explain to our listeners uh, what exactly a midwife does. And depending on the state, as you mentioned, different laws, there's a different certification and licensing processes for uh, midwives before they can become part of of this uh, this integration, this system for women as they go through their pregnancy and delivery. Right. So um, a midwife is... Um somebody who uh, most of us think about is somebody who delivers babies or is involved in attending births. Um, In the U.S., midwives attend um, around 10% of births in uh, uh, total uh, every year. That doesn't mean that they deliver those babies. They they are involved in in their births in some way. Um, However, midwives um, may or may not be trained to do uh, much more. In the U.S., um, in every state, including Connecticut, um, there's a type of midwife that's the most common. That's a certified nurse midwife, and they are, um, are registered nurses who then have an additional graduate degree in midwifery. And they, uh, within their scope of practice, uh, as they describe it, includes um, you know everything from family planning to pregnancy uh, care, prenatal care, postpartum care, childbirth, also menopause care, well women care. So that's the, the entire scope of practice for um, potentially for a nurse, a certified nurse midwife. Um, they are um, licensed in every state and um, the rules by which they can be uh, allowed to actually practice to their full scope of practice. Um, that's one of the things that varies widely from state to state. There are other kinds of midwives that are um, generally known as direct entry midwives, and they um, usually don't have the same level of medical uh, nursing training, medical training. Um, uh, sometimes some one class is known as um, certified professional midwives. There's others called, quote, certified midwives or lay midwives. It's very confusing as one of the, um, uh, as a number of people I, I talk to um, acknowledged. And um, the main thing about these midwives is that they have different levels of training, which isn't to say that their training is necessarily bad. It's just different. And they are um, much less likely to be licensed by states. Um, And they are also um, often associated with out-of-hospital births, home births, or birthing center births. On the phone with me is Nina Martin, who covers gender and sexuality for Pro, for ProPublica. Uh, the latest story that she's done is looking at a study that uh, rates and looks at the laws found in uh, many different states about how a larger role for midwives could improve uh, deficient U.S. care for mothers and babies. You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Something you said, Nina, that I wanted to go back to uh, in terms of uh, in the United States, uh, 10% of births are attended to by uh, midwives. In Great Britain, you write that midwives deliver half of all babies, and then you go on to talk about some other European countries. Let's talk about the historical context surrounding uh, you know, when mi- midwives were embraced in this country, and then what changed? Well, midwives were embraced in this country, um, you know, throughout much of the 19th century. Um, Midwives delivered most babies in the U.S., as they did in every other country, as they have throughout human history. Um, What happened in the 19th century um, is that uh, in the late 19th century was this move toward the professionalization of medicine. And um, this was, uh, you know, in doctors' groups, um, uh, the American Medical Association um, notably began pushing for a monopoly over all kinds of um, uh, lay practitioners' care, um, and especially obstetrics' care. 
um, one of the things that happened was that um, physicians, you know, argued that um, midwives were, um, uh, that, that birth was a process that required si- scientific knowledge and hospital equipment, that it was a, um, quote-unquote, pathologic process, meaning that th- bad things happened, um, as opposed to um, a physiological condition, which is what nurse, uh, which is what midwives um, argued then and now, which is that it's a natural function and doesn't necessarily require lots and lots of intervention for most normal pregnancies. The thing that overlaid the U.S. Um, and that was different than in other um, in European countries is that um, in the by the late 19th century, um, early 20th century in this country, most midwives were either um, uh, immigrants um, who brought you know who spoke different languages, brought their own cultural uh, ideas and and practices, or they were black. In the South, these blacks were known commonly as granny midwives. And um, so there was definitely an element of racism and uh, overlaid on sort of the medical um, objections that uh, that doctors had, and um, uh, and so that's one of the things that was that that really is different in the U.S. There were parts of the U.S. Um, that uh, where midwives continued to be. Um, uh, in use more than in other parts, so they were largely wiped out um, in the east and in the um, and in the south. Um, in places in the west, Washington State, for example, which rates at the top of integration, uh, New Mexico is is similar. Midwives didn't entirely go away; those were very rural uh, states. They were very, um, uh, you know, they're 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 uh, they were much less um, uh, they were much less. Uh, there were fewer hospitals, there were fewer options for women there in terms of doctors, and so midwives were always considered to be essential, and they were always better, they remain better integrated um, than in the East and the South. Again, Nina Martin's on the phone with us from ProPublica. Again, we look at uh, the difference in laws uh, throughout the the U.S. in terms of how uh, midwives are able to care for women and uh, their babies. Caroline's calling from Winstead, and you can join the conversation, too, 860-275-7266. Caroline, go ahead. Hi. uh, Thank you for taking my call. Um, I had three babies in my time, and uh, one was with a, a traditional hospital birth and um, with a doctor or OBGYN. And the other two were, I decided to switch to a certified nurse midwife, and I, I cannot tell you the difference in the care that I got with the midwives. It was a whole body approach to my childbirth to my pregnancy and to postpartum care. Um, it was just it was just a wonderful experience. And um, the, it, what was amazing is their ability to really feel the baby when I was, um, you know, when I was pregnant, to know um, exactly what was going on in my body and to really address different issues I was having um, as a pregnant mom, whether it be edema or the uh, protein count that was so important in terms of nutrition. And um, and they really took time with me where, um, as I, fe- I felt with the OBGYNs, not that all would be this way, but mine in particular, um, really rushed me through my pregnancy. I didn't know what I was doing. It was my first pregnancy. So it was really wonderful to have the care of a midwife. 
Thank you, Caroline, for your call. It's a good transition to my next question, uh, Nina Martin, about how the midwifery model differs from that standard OBGYN care. Well, um, you know, your um, caller touched on a lot of a lot of that. I would say what I uh, what what um, you hear often is that midwives are um, patient focused. They are community focused. Um, they are um, they the goal. Uh, much of what they do is um, is focused on. Um, uh, emphasizing close relationships between providers and patients over a period of time so and a continuum of care think about what with many OBs you see your OB many times during the during the course of your pregnancy and then as soon as you give birth you hardly ever see that person again maybe 6 weeks maybe 4 weeks after you give birth and that's that's it but the continuum of care uh, for a midwife ideally uh, is all the way through uh, the postpartum period and and the visits often are much more frequent um, visits with midwives i've heard from many women are tend to be um, much um, longer OBs often spend you know just a few minutes they're, they rush in, they rush out. A midwife may spend a half an hour or more on per visit. Um, one thing that's, and then the major thing is it's about avoiding um, uh, uh, unnecessary interventions that can spiral into dangerous complications. So um, uh, certain kinds of interventions are um, often necessary during to make births um, safe for the mother and baby, um, but sometimes they, um, they're not quite as necessary as, as doctors and hospitals um, might make them seem. So um, um, induced induction of labor, for example, or um, giving somebody an epidural before she might be really feeling huge amounts of pain. Um, certainly um, C-sections um, are often, um, you know, there's it's many states, and um, Connecticut is a really good example of one that still has a pretty high rate of um, primary C-sections that are um, considered unnecessary. It's up to, it's a little higher than the national average there, 34% over 32% for the U.S. And so um, these are the kinds of things that midwives are sort of striving to do. And um, this is, I want to say here, when we talk about maternal uh, and infant um, outcomes in this country, um, the outcomes are particularly bad, as, as I've written, for African-American women. Uh, much worse uh, 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 infant death, much worse uh, maternal deaths and maternal complications than for white women. And the model of... Um, this is a, the, one of the things that midwives are saying, especially in states that have large black populations in the South um, and, uh, uh, and, and not very much OB care in general um, because they're largely rural, um, uh, many rural counties, um, that, that the midwifery model can really be something that, um, that fills in gaps uh, in care in those areas that, that the gaps that disproportionately affect um, uh, black women and rural women and, um, and that that the midwifery model, because it's it's very patient focused and patient friendly, and um, could even maybe cut through a lot of the kinds of um, uh, really uh, unhappy interactions um, bordering um, on discrimination or or not bordering that actually do reflect systemic um, discrimination against African American women that contribute to their 
um, their bad outcomes. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. I'm talking with ProPublica reporter Nina Martin about her latest story on midwives in the U.S. and the health outcomes that could be seen when midwives are part of a collaborative approach to prenatal and postpartum care. Now, how does Connecticut compare to other states on accessibility to midwives? The medical director of the Vadone Birth Center at Yale New Haven St. Raphael's campus will join us after the break, and we'll take your calls and questions too, 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We've been talking about the latest story in the ProPublica series, Lost Mothers. Reporter Nina Martin is with us. She reported on a recent study that found when midwives are given a larger role in prenatal and postpartum care in the U.S., there are better outcomes for mothers and their babies. The Vadone Birth Center at Yale New Haven Hospital, St. Raphael, introduced a midwifery model of care a few years ago. Uh, right now, I want to j- ask a Dr. Jessica Aluzzi to join the conversation. She is the center's medical director. Dr. Aluzzi, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. I mentioned you're an OB at the Yale New Haven St. Raphael. You were a force behind creating this uh, center at uh, the hospital birth center with midwives. Uh, explain your rationale on uh, why you were pushing this model of care at this particular hospital. Um, Well, Yale New Haven Hospital has a long history of having midwives integrated into the model of care that they provide, and that's largely um, due to the presence of the Yale School of Nursing and its um, teaching program in midwifery that's very well respected across the country. So many of the physician practices, as well as the hospital itself, has been integrating midwives into its um, into its program and offerings um, for many decades. So I did my residency at this hospital, so I trained amongst midwives, and um, I also kind of grew up around a mother who was a childbirth educator and a doula in one of the randomized trials in this country. So I was exposed to midwifery at a very early age, so I, I kind of have always respected this model and knew that it was something that was very important um, to provide high-quality care to women. So it, you know, it, this was an opportunity when um, these two hospitals merged, mm-hmm. I think, to really make sure that this model was something that was um, offered at this campus, um, knowing that it was already provided at the other campus, we wanted to make sure that that it was definitely something that women could take advantage of. And how receptive were your doctor colleagues uh, to this midwifery model? We had talked earlier with uh, Nina Martin about the history of midwives in the U.S., um, and I'm just curious if there was any pushback or just uh, patients not quite understanding the role of a midwife and being hesitant about that. Yeah, so like I mentioned, I think that New Haven is very unique because of the school of midwifery in this in this city. Around Connecticut, it's not necessarily the same. Um, I think that many physicians have trained in places where there were not midwives on the labor floors where they learned how to practice OBGYN. And instead, their exposure to midwifery may have been um, to patients that were brought in from outside who were experiencing complications because while they were being cared for by midwives. So if that's their only exposure to um, a woman who's experiencing a complication, they develop a very negative um, view of midwifery. Um, 
in contrast, if you're if you're training in a place where there's many midwives on the labor floor that you're working on and you're actually developing very positive relationships with these providers and also seeing the very positive outcomes that they have and um, seeing women very satisfied and and having excellent birth experiences, you have a very different perception of midwives and you're much more willing to work with them. So um, many of the physicians in New Haven, you know, have that experience. And then many of the physicians on my team um, were fortunate to have had training like that. So I think you see a large dichotomy of um, physician experience across the country. And that might be why some states really are not so amenable to working with midwives and and others are. And it kind of depends on the um, saturation of midwives in the areas where physicians have trained. Nina Martin from ProPublica, what do you think about that, that uh, the idea of competition um, being one of the uh, barriers that in some states uh, where you don't see as many uh, midwives that are allowed to collaborate in this practice? Well, I think that certainly competition is an issue in some states. I don't know to what extent it's an issue in Connecticut. Um, but I think that um, I think that, uh, that that's actually um, spot on. I think that in many states, um, I, I've heard over and over again that um, if you that one of the big problems with um, doctors and patients as well is that they are just not exposed to midwives. Um, you know, in some states, um, and Alabama comes to mind, um, uh, midwives are still sort of associated with um, granny midwives, and so unlicensed and you know people who don't know what they're doing, um, and, and that's kind of the pervasive attitude apparently. Even midwives tell me, and so. Um, Without that kind of, um, without sort of a density of midwives, without more people there showing, uh, you know, kind of showing what they can do, there's going to inevitably be um, uh, restrictions on what they can do and a, and a sort of a suspicion and, and hostility um, or at least a skepticism and resistance toward them. Um, uh, I think that that is makes total sense. I think North Carolina, I've heard, is actually a state. It's the worst. It's it count in the study. It's, it was the least integrated. So um, uh, of the uh, states, and it ranked at the at the rock bottom. Um, but actually, um, uh, North Carolina has many more midwives than than Alabama does, and many more midwife attended births. But there are just enormous restrictions on what um, the ability of, of midwives to actually practice, deliver the kind of care that they're, uh, that they're capable of delivering and that they're trained to deliver as nurse midwives in that state. And that's, what, and that's where the problems are. They, they, they need a, basically, they need a doctor's permission to be able to practice at all. I want to go back to Dr. Jessica Aluzzi. We just have a couple of minutes left. and She's Medical Director of Obstetrics at the Vadone Birth Center at Yale New Haven Hospital, St. Raphael Campus. Uh, Nina's story uh, also showed that in Great Britain, uh, midwives deliver half of all babies there. I'm just curious, uh, Dr. Aluzzi, you know, what do you think needs to change to see uh, midwives, certified nurse midwives, uh, be able to um, assist in this kind of of care and at, at times even take the lead? You know, that's an interesting question. Um, so at our center, um, the midwives deliver all of the of the women who are having normal labors. Um, Sometimes they have an an OB resident with them, and sometimes they have a midwifery student with them. 
Um, and then the obstetricians are there to um, perform cesarean deliveries or um, vacuum or forceps deliveries if necessary, and also there to help if a woman develops preeclampsia or has gestational diabetes or develops a, a hemorrhage. We're there to help with any complications that arise. But the other thing we're there for is to help when a labor is slowing down um, or if the fetal heart rate tracing if a woman's requiring continuous fetal monitoring, if the tracing is looking a little concerning, we're there by the midwife's side to help um, decide whether or not it's okay to keep going. And we've actually become team players in that effort. And I feel like that's giving the physician a role um, in helping women achieve a normal physiologic birth and that's what I think is a truly collaborative role between a physician and a midwife. Um, I think if we, a lot of people talk about the midwifery-led model of care, and I think that's wonderful, but it actually shuts out physicians, and that actually will create this sense of competition and make physicians concerned that they're being replaced. And so if you come out into a state saying we're going to add the mid a midwifery-led model of care, I think many physicians automatically may start to push back. But if you come into a state or a hospital and say, we would like to promote a collaborative model of care and truly describe what that means, because it doesn't mean that the physician gets to step in and say, okay, we've labored enough, it's time to do a C-section. It actually means that the midwife and the physician are working together to help that woman achieve the birth that she wants to achieve, you know, and working together with the patient, with the woman in the middle, um, and the nurse, and the midwife, and the doctor, um, surrounding her with support, maybe with her doula and her partner as well, surrounding her with the support she needs to achieve the birth that she's trying to achieve. When we all do that together, and um, we can all celebrate in the success of a vaginal delivery, we as the physicians feel valued. So even if we have a vaginal delivery and we didn't deliver the, the patient in the end, we still feel like we were part of that success. Uh, I, I wanted feel, to just step in, Dr. Aluzzi, yeah, before ahead. we run out of time, I wanted to go back to Nina Martin. Um, mm -hmm. You know, something that we should point out in your story, half of all counties in the U.S. don't have a practicing OBGYN. So there is a room for this midwifery model in some parts of the country. Absolutely. Um, and this, uh, the, the um, rural areas and um, especially in the Midwest and the, and the South, um, many counties don't have um, OBG, uh, OBGYNs. They don't have hospitals that provide obstetric care. And midwives, um, you know, trained, licensed midwives who are fully integrated into the system can really be an important um, resource. And we'll have to leave it there. Nina Martin from ProPublica and Dr. Jessica Aluzzi from Yale New Haven St. Rayfield. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. Thanks for listening.